If radio waves were visible and tangible, we would not be able to move without stumbling. There would be so many wires throughout the room that moving would definitely be a challenge. In fact, the very device from which you are listening to this podcast right now probably has a wireless signal contributing to this mess. Just to give you a glimpse of it, do you remember listening to the radio only for it to go crackly for a moment and then back? During those few seconds of static, someone's cell phone rang, be it in your home, across the street, or across town. The cell phone signal temporarily interrupted your radio signal. It's like your radio was looking for one signal, but grabbed another. This is electromagnetic interference. Although invisible, it has a tremendous power to destroy a machine. Hello and welcome to another episode of Crosstalks. My name is Barbara Pino and I will be your host. This is a podcast series by the UT Austin Portugal program that will walk you through the wonders of science business collaboration. We will be exploring emerging topics in advanced computing, medical physics, nanotechnologies, space earth interactions, and technology innovation and entrepreneurship as we delve into the program's industry-driven research projects. In today's episode, we will be exploring the invisible yet very real phenomenon of electromagnetic interference. Electromagnetic interference is a serious and increasing form of environmental pollution, and it interferes with just about anything from our TVs to pacemakers. While the first one is only bothersome, the latter can have devastating consequences. To prevent electromagnetic interference, scientists came up with shields, more specifically EMI shields, which are metallic screens that absorb the interference transmitted through the air. EMI shields are important in today's tech world as they prevent people from accessing data from our devices. EMI shields are also used to increase security for military, government and financial systems. However, current shielding materials used to protect electronic devices from EMI are based on heavy, fragile, and expensive metals. Recently, there has been a huge demand for EMI shields with flexible, additive, light, and inexpensive materials to increase autonomy and reduce the carbon footprint. This is where the Transatlantic Gemis project, a three-year industry-led research project supported by the UT Austin Portugal program, comes into play. The GEMIS team wants to respond to this demand, and through their research, they believe they have found a highly innovative solution in the fight against electromagnetic interference in the automotive industry. Now, let's hear the experts that will explain this in more detail. They are Bruno Figueiredo and Deji Akiwande. Bruno Figueiredo is the COO and Head of Research and Development at Grafenest, and holds a PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Aveiro, Portugal. He's an expert in graphene and was elected as a member of the 2017 industry class at Forbes 30 Under 30. Desi Akawande is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and holds the Temple Foundation Endowed Professorship Number 1 at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. 
Welcome, Bruno and Desi, and thank you for accepting our invitation. How are you doing? Hey, Barbara, here, everything is great. Thank you for asking. Yes, we're doing very well in Texas, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. It's really a pleasure to be here talking with you both. And we will kick off with the science bits. The presence of electromagnetic interference in our lives is very perceptible. I've tried to give our listeners an overview of electromagnetic interference, but can you please explain how it occurs and the problem it poses? Yes, yes, indeed. So electromagnetic interference is uh, pervasive in society, especially we have a lot of um, connected devices, either wirelessly connected uh, or, or physically connected. Uh, it affects uh, not just consumers uh, using electronics, but also affects the safety uh, and security of many of the uh, transportation systems, uh, aviation systems, and uh, industrial systems as well. So basically any electronics uh, uh, device uh, is susceptible to electromagnetic interference. And this interference just means that unwanted signals, uh, oftentimes wirelessly uh, radiating in our environment can uh, interfere with the desired signals that uh, we um, uh, are interested in. So for example, someone uh, taking a phone call uh, by a microwave uh, is going to experience some amount of electromagnetic interference due to the uh, um, high power signals generated by that microwave. Likewise, if you're watching um, you know, or streaming uh, a show on TV, uh, your cables that connect to the power supply or to the uh, signal line of your TV can experience uh, electromagnetic interference from adjacent uh, devices that are also connected to the cloud or to the internet. So this is a very serious situation and uh, it has become even more serious in modern times because now on average, every person has multiple connected devices. It's interesting to hear the many fields in which this could actually have an impact and it could of course have an impact in our daily lives as a consequence. Um, and I can see that the extent and magnitude of the problem resulting from electromagnetic interference can be quite diverse from what you just said. And from what I've read on the topic, there are three different methods to help reduce electromagnetic interference, filtering, grounding, and shielding. Could you talk to me about these differences? Yes, uh, Barbara, you're indeed right. Uh, there are multi multiple ways to reduce electromagnetic interference. It's very difficult to remove it completely, but due to modern advances in engineering, uh, these methods have proved quite effective. So for example, filtering is a way to isolate the signal that uh, you desire, the desired signal, and block out all other unwanted signals. So it's very similar to, let's say, you have a window in a house, that window is going to let light pass through, but other areas of the house that don't have that window will block light. So this is what filtering does. Filtering is very important and a popular technique used in mobile devices because it's one of the best techniques to reduce electromagnetic interference because in those cases, uh, many of the desired bands are well known. Uh, grounding is also very important. Uh, and this is important for mobile devices also because uh, ground, so every signal has a ground. 
And unfortunately, uh, when you have a mobile device where your ground is your, the ultimate ground is the battery, uh, the electronic chips may be very far away from the uh, ultimate ground. So these uh, wires, uh, uh, we call them interconnects, but these wires, these very small wires that connect all the electronic chips, uh, these wires can be susceptible to uh, electromagnetic interference. So one of the best ways to reduce this interference is to reduce the length of the wires so that the electronic chips are very close to the ultimate ground, which is the battery. Uh, and then that will reduce uh, interference. Shielding is very popular and effective uh, when you have connected devices, uh, TVs, medical instruments, aviation systems, industrial systems, because uh, these wires um, are carrying very high data uh, signals. So you may be streaming uh, something from, from your streaming, uh, um, you know, Netflix or whatever. And so these wires are carrying these very high speed signals, but other uh, devices around them can also uh, interfere with these wires. So normally we think of uh, signals coming through the antenna and then they leave through the antenna, but these uh, electromagnetic signals uh, are so pervasive, they can penetrate a lot of the cables that connect our connected devices. So then it's very important that those cables are well shielded. So one popular way to do that is to have a thick metal layer in those cables. So if you go to the store to buy high performance cables, let's say for your TV, you notice that these cables can be very, very expensive. They're not negligible cost. And that is because they've invested a lot of engineering innovation to make sure the cables are well shielded so that they can block out electromagnetic interference. So those are kind of the three methods of um, preventing electromagnetic interference. Before we actually move on to my next question, I gotta be curious about the cost you just mentioned. Do you have a number that perhaps could illustrate how costly this uh, solution is? Well, so it depends on, you know, the, the gadget you're buying. But I remember going to the store not too long ago, uh, buying some, uh, looking at some cables uh, for my TV. And, uh, you know, these cables can cost, you know, $40, $50 uh, because they have the connector, you have the cable, they're all gold plated. And so these are very premium products. Uh, and so they can be quite expensive. Of course, you can buy cables very, very cheap, and then you'll be susceptible to electromagnetic interference. But these high-performance cables cost tens of dollars. And you can imagine for a medical facility where this is extremely important, or for aviation, aircraft systems, military systems, cable cost and cable weight is a very, very high uh, uh, item. Mm, I can see the difference in price, like five times price here. Bruno, would you like to add to the conversation? Uh, yeah, just to confirm what Deji said, uh, I already saw, I think, an audio cable, high fidelity audio cable, costing almost 30K, 30K dollars. Uh, so it's very high prices for what we are used to, to see, right? So yeah, the importance of the feature in some cases makes the difference on how you, on, on, the, on the connectivity of certain device. Uh, for instance, on military applications, um, they used to pay for, for those numbers so because they need it. Uh, they want to have a reliable and secure way to shield or protect something, and that's the only way to do it. 
Yeah, they cannot risk it, can they? So some investment must be directed towards that. Actually, this brings us to the Jemis project. Am I pronouncing it properly? Jemis, that's it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a three-year industry-driven research project supported by UTOS in Portugal. And in this project, your focus is on enhancing the shielding method using graphene. Why is this an idea? Um, and what special features do you think graphene has to offer? What makes it better than other materials to incorporate in this uh, shielding process? Bruno, you are the graphene expert here, so I'd like to hear from you. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the graphene expert here, uh, <laughs> but yes, um, that's that's a, a great question. Graphene has been called the most effective material for EMI shielding, electromagnetic interference shielding, uh, because a tiny amount of, 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 of mass of this material can deliver a great level of shielding uh, on a large frequency range. And, and it, it, is this like, uh, or it, this, this happens because it is the most effective uh, due to the electrical conductivity of, of, of graphene. Uh, because at the nanoscale, um, this material is exactly the most uh, electrical conductive uh, one. And uh, compo composites, uh, and by composites, I mean uh, coatings or even plastic composites benefit exactly from that. Uh, well, conductivity is not uh, the only uh, parameter or the, or the only feature that this kind of solution must have, but is uh, kind of paramount. So you need to have a certain uh, level of conductivity to have shielding at the end. Uh, but by using uh, graphene, we are turning uh, insulating materials into conductive materials, and those materials can be used then to have the same kind of shielding performance than metals, for instance. This is what we have been trying to achieve with Jenny's uh, project. I'm just wondering, are we using this material to coat cables like Deji talked about? Would this be to just go around a cable? Am I picturing it properly? So yeah, we are trying to do different things. Uh, part of the things we're doing is to develop a kind of a uni universal formulation to be used as a coating uh, on the external side on the outer, outer uh, layer of, of a cable. But simultaneously, we are looking to develop uh, conductive or graphene-based conductive, conductive plastics. Uh, and by plastics, I mean uh, even recycled ones can be used to be uh, electrical conductive. Uh, so this is, there are two pathways here, one, one side coatings and the other side composites, plastics, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so we're not just talking about the coating here, but part of your research work will be done at the nanoscale. We're talking about manipulating materials at a scale level that can't be reached with a conventional microscope, let alone the human eye. This sounds almost like sci-fi, but it's actually true. How come? And Deji, I'd like to start with you. So the nanoscale is a phenomenon that uh, scientists and engineers have been experiencing now for uh, uh, the past few decades. It's when things behave unusually in general uh, when you make them very, very small. So what do we mean by nanoscale? We mean that making things that are very, very, very small, so to, to the extent that you cannot see them. So for example, you know, our normal materials like steel, like uh, plastic, sand, all of those we can see with our eyes. Then there are some smaller, smaller materials that we need an optical microscope, a bench microscope to see. 
So those microscopes provide a magnification, let's say, of a thousand. So nanoscale uh, uh, materials are devices or materials so small that you can't even see them with the optical microscope. You need very specialized microscopes that have magnification of a million. So they're extremely small, you know, as small as the cells or even smaller than the cells in our body. So at this, at this scale, it turns out that many of the material properties change dramatically different from what they were uh, in the normal um, uh, uh, volume. So a very good example is graphite. Graphite is the stuff that we have in our pencils. It's actually very, very weak material. And this is why we can use them in pencils. And when we scratch them on paper to write, material peels off from the graphite. We get this graphite from the ground. Uh, however, if you make this same material at the nanoscale, it becomes graphene, which is just a single sheet of carbon atoms. And as Bruno just mentioned, this is actually uh, the strongest material in the world. So going from the bulk or the normal material, which is very weak at the nanoscale, it becomes extremely very, very strong and very conductive. So that is a, a part of the you know, magic or mystery of the nanoscale. For us at this project, we are trying to get the, uh, or to turn a bulky material like graphite uh, and change, changing its properties in marvelous ways. So we are trying to use a bulky material as natural graphite and turn it into graphene to take advantage of the electrical conductivity and the strength on the products we are trying to develop. So that's it. Uh, basically, we are going to nano to then produce micro or even macro scale products. Uh, and I think that's the, the special thing about nano. It's getting the best to be used on common world. It's quite interesting the fact that we're talking about something so usual to our daily lives, right? The pencil and how we use graphite on a, a daily basis. And then you take that and it's the strongest material on earth. I didn't know that, so I'm a bit surprised, I must say. Coming back to the project, as you were saying, Bruno, could you tell me the proper solutions coming out of this project and how game-changing will they be compared to available solutions? At Jerry's project, again, we are trying to develop graphene-based solutions to be uh, implemented as uh, uh, EMI uh, shielding products. Um, I think those solutions should combine a set of different features. Uh, lightness, uh, versatility, even sustainability. This is this is a, a hot topic nowadays, right? Um, current uh, shielding materials are most of them, or all, the majority, are based on metals, uh, from enclosures to foils, even kind of meshes, uh, aluminium, copper, stainless steel, those kind of different solutions. So. But those solutions typically requires uh, a set of energy and time intensive processes from mining uh, to product assembly. So at the end, we would like to have this more sustainable uh, products uh, using fewer steps of production with less costs uh, as well. And I think graphene brings bring, bring that to, to, the, to the topic. Uh, sometimes actually graphene can also um, provide you a better way, a easier way to uh, produce a certain shape. Metals are difficult to conform, so or require more steps, like I said, 
And uh, if we have a conductive plastic that we can conform on a specific geometry or shape on the easiest way, it will be, it will be better. I can give you an example. One of the things that we are doing with a partner here is to extrude the cable uh, already with, the, with the, the graphene loaded in it, which is exactly the same they did or they do with normal plastic. So they can be faster producing a, a cable that is already being shielded instead of having an additional step to have the exactly same feature. So this is what graphene can bring to, to, the, to, the, to the table. That sounds pretty, pretty fast. The fact that you could make it automatically like both stages, both, both steps in just one stage of production. Could you elaborate on the sustainability bit? So you said that graphene could be a good solution because the other materials, some of them are heavy metals. When we're talking about graphene though, to make it happen, wouldn't that be polluting as well? Or are we talking about a solution that's cleaner? It, it depends on a lot of different things. Uh, here at Graphnest, we have a proprietary technology that uh, aims to produce graphene on a sustainable way. Because, okay, we have the mining part of the graphite, which is not so sustainable, uh, but uh, the production of converting graphite into graphene uh, at our hand, it, it will be. So we can we typically use uh, green solvents, and by green I mean also water. Uh, we are trying to recover part of those solvents at the end of the production to uh, uh, reuse them on the next batch of production. Uh, so that part will be will be good. But actually, is is about the what we have been discussing in with this last partner that I mentioned is because we are reducing the the number of steps of production at. Uh, 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 late stakeholders on, on the supply chain that will um, demand less less steps to produce and few energy to produce a certain shielding part or component or system. So uh, at the end, this brings sustainability to, 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 to the topic, to the production as well. Absolutely. And the fact that you can really shorten the process, the industrial process, save some energy, of course. Also, um, Sustainability has to do with the with the production of metals. Mining of metals is not it's not so good. Uh, in Europe, we are suffering from uh, a lack of uh, supplying of, of those of those metals. Actually, there is there are some programs that want to uh, uh, diminish the dependence of uh, external uh, countries for those for that supply. So if we have solutions uh, in-house that can be used for the same kind of purpose, it will be good as well. Thank you for adding that up. Now, I know this graphene-based solution will cater to several different industries, from electronics to telecommunications, transportation, and the Internet of Things market. In this project, you have been working closely with a potential end user of the automotive industry. Now, this sector has to meet a variety of electromagnetic compatibility requirements and regulations. How are these requirements being fed into your research and development process? In my experience, uh, the automotive or all these industries have standards that they have to um, achieve. So those standards uh, specify how, how much reduction of the electromagnetic interference must be met before uh, a technology or a component is certified uh, for that industry. And so I think this is the kind of information that uh, they will no doubt uh, be providing um, uh, to uh, 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 developers of graphene. And, and then there are other things that are not specified, but 
that really provide a competitive advantage. So if two different materials or three different materials can satisfy the basic requirements, then of course uh, the industry um, decision makers will begin to look at uh, other parameters like cost, like weight. So this is where graphene then can differentiate itself uh, in terms of these uh, uh, parameters that are very important to the end prices of automotives and other industrial products. So cost and weight are key attributes that graphene can also deliver. Yeah, that's it. That, that's amazing, Deji, because uh, for this new uh, e-mobility world or e-mobility market, you want to have longer mileage of, of a certain vehicle. So uh, uh, lightness features are, are, are a must. Uh, but uh, answering is very straight to your question, Barbara, uh, the, the requirements from the, from the automotive industry were set since the inception of, of the project. Uh, and I'm saying this because um, we have been, uh, well, this is public, uh, Yazaki Corporation is uh, supporting, let's say, this, uh, this project. And they immediately told us what will be the, the frequency they would like to shield on a, a certain automotive data cable. And so we immediately set the targets to shield exactly the, 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 the frequency they want. But uh, sometimes in terms of requirements, again, it's uh, far from only the, 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 the shielding of a certain frequency. Again, it has to do with prices. It has to do with sustainability. It has to do uh, with velocity to produce. Um, a, a, a lot of different uh, features should be uh, overtaken while uh, setting the, the requirements for a certain tier one or tier two uh, stakeholders. But again, also this is also important to mention, sometimes uh, the supply chain um, is working towards a requirement of original equipment manufacturer. Imagine you have, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if I can refer names, but Audi or BMW or Mercedes uh, setting the requirements. I want to block this kind of uh, shielding or I want to have this type of automotive, regardless if it's in energy, energy or um, data cable, I want to have exactly this requirement. And then all the supply chain go backwards trying to solve exactly that problem. Um, sometimes they also trigger, in, uh, trigger inside uh, some development. Of course, they want to supply to the OEMs or the, the, the next tier uh, uh, novel materials, novel products, uh, but sometimes or the most of the times the, the, the original equipment manufacturer is the one uh, setting the requirements. Uh, in this case, um, actually, apart from the frequency from the Yazaki, we are trying to look at other things, other frequencies uh, the typical ones for Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, we're going to uh, also a little bit further on the 5G connectivity network, uh, maybe 6G. Uh, this is something we are still discussing internally uh, on, on the project. But yeah, I think uh, I think that's all for mm -hmm. this question. Is this the partner you were talking about beforehand, the partnership you were discussing? Is this still the automotive industry? Yes, and this yes, they want to, yeah. Apart from the shielding, they want to become faster be and reducing the the steps to produce a certain mm. cable. Okay, so the, the, this is the partner that actually wants to save some energy and the other expenses that come yes. within 
um, an industry production or an industrial production. Now, this project should end by 2023. And I'd like to ask you, what plans do you have to bring this solution, dual design, to the market? So there are partnerships here and you are working with partners already. I would like to understand if there are any significant barriers to their production, so to your solution's production and consequent commercialization. So Bruno, could you walk us through this? Well, yes, there, there are some barriers, of course. Uh, apart from we have been discussing uh, how to implement this on an industrial level, uh, all the supply chain has to be happy with this solution because sometimes you, you solve part of the problem but then you encounter a new one, uh, far from where you are. Um, but what comes to the graphene production, there is a huge, uh, a huge barrier that has to do with the, the REACH regulation. So the REACH regulation says that you cannot uh, produce uh, above a certain level of uh, a nano, nanoparticle. Uh, so this, is a, this applies for, I think it's Europe only. So we cannot produce above one ton per year without a, a, a registration of a new substance. Uh, actually, uh, we are now part of a consortium to produce more quantity in, in the near future. Um, and then there are, like uh, Deji said, there are a lot of different compliances that uh, we have to fulfill, right? So, uh, so uh, Imagine a cable, uh, not, regardless if it is an automotive or not, you, you, you need to withstand higher temperatures, uh, you need to uh, withstand the UV, uh, you need to withstand uh, exposure to harsh environments like uh, harsh chemicals. Uh, so a lot of different compliance has to be, uh, have to be tested and, and fulfilled. You meant that bit of, you talked about regulation, it sounds a bit difficult to overcome, right? Because it's within the EU, I'm guessing, European mm -hmm. Union. Um, is this an issue in the US, Deji, or is it just, you know, uh, here in Europe? I think it's an issue everywhere. You know, this, uh, this concerns uh, transatlantic and uh, products made uh, in really one geography um, are being sold and marketed all over the world. Okay, so a hurdle to overcome in many places, not just the EU. It's interesting to talk about regulation because sometimes when we think about industry, and when I say we, I'm talking about the non-scientific audience, I guess we never think about that bit. We keep thinking about the money bit, uh, which is the one everyone's a bit closer to. Um, we're almost closing up. I just have two more questions. And the first one would be about the fact that this is a transatlantic project. There's an ocean apart between us right now, quite literally. Um, and I know this project is bringing together industry and academic partners in Portugal and at UT Austin. So what is each partner adding to the project? I know this is a big question, but I'd like to understand what is each partner taking away from the collaborative experience and what is each partner giving to the project? Yes, uh, I think this is really a wonderful opportunity for us at, uh, in, as academics because it gives us an opportunity, opportunity to work with translational partners uh, uh, like Bruno uh, that are trying to take uh, uh, new materials towards application. So in specific, uh, I have a student, uh, I, but uh, there's a team here at UT Austin, me and my good colleague, uh, Brian 
Professor Brian Cogle, uh, we have students working on the materials aspect in terms of uh, capabilities and facilities that can do advanced characterization. Uh, I have a student working on the design uh, of using this uh, graphene materials for 5G uh, and beyond at high frequencies. So we have design capability, we have content knowledge of how to uh, engineer this uh, uh, materials for this uh, 5G applications. And so being able to partner with Bruno to get these high quality materials who then I think is, um, is a very excellent synergistic uh, collaboration. Yeah, on our side, it's exactly the same feeling. Uh, it's, it's awesome to uh, have interdisciplinarity to, to the team because here at Graphinest, uh, most of us uh, have an engineering degree on, on, on the chemistry and physics uh, side. So it's good to have uh, people on the part of the electronics uh, uh, side as well that complement the, the, the comp competences that we have uh, at Graphinest. We, we cannot forget INL as well. INL is one of the partners of, of mm -hmm. this project. Uh, there we have a, a, a team led by Andrea Capasso. Uh, they are also looking to develop new formulations of graphene-based inks and uh, composites to be used on, 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 on this project. Here at Graphnest, we produce the graphene, like, like I said uh, uh, before. Uh, we are also formulating part of those, of those inks here, also uh, having this um, Managing the project, having this relation with the, with the consortium partners and with Yazaki, the, the industrial um, um, partner here. So that's it, mostly. There are many areas here, right? We're talking about nanotech, we're talking about telecommunications, and we're also talking about chemistry and chem chemical engineering. So it's quite interesting to see how all of that combines for a single project about cables. I don't mean to diminish it, of course. But it is interesting to think about it in a perspective of society and how it can help society directly. Mm -hmm. Now, my last question really reinforces this idea of international cooperation. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about how important the program such as UTOS in Portugal has been to push this project forward. Do you think that international collaboration in science and technology calls for similar programs like these? Yes, uh, I think so. I think it's important to have this international collaboration. Um, again, like Deji said, for us, it's important to have team of experts on certain topics that we don't have it here in, 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 in Portugal. For us as a company, it's even more important because we then have access to people that uh, other way it, it will be impossible. Uh, so for us, it, it's, it's excellent to be in touch with, with Edgy, with Brian and, and their team, and, and with INL that have a great uh, facility uh, to, for the characterization preparation of, of materials. I, I do believe that UT Austin also has this kind of facilities there. I, I've never been there. I, I want to be there next year or, or, or sooner as possible. Uh, but it's important to, again, to have these international collaborations to, to grow the competences, to establish new ways to collaborate at the end of the program. Um, maybe we can solve different problems, not only related to shielding, but using graphene for other kind of telecom or electronics problems. Uh, yes, I think they are paramount to, to evolve scientific and technical uh, things. 
Yes, uh, this is exactly true. Uh, I think this is international collaboration is really the most efficient way to bring uh, novel uh, concepts towards uh, products because uh, as Bruno mentioned, it's, it's much more efficient to be able to uh, partner with experts all over uh, the world uh, rather than you know, developing the complete expertise from chemistry, materials, engineering, uh, in-house, that'll be very, very expensive and it will take a lot of time. So international collaboration has proven to be successful for many decades now, and I expect this is the way forward. Would you like to add anything else before we wrap up? Yes, I'd just like to add one thing. So we've really talked uh, about uh, interference, but there's the opposite side of uh, this technology is security. So interference is when you want unwanted signals interfering with uh, your gadgets. Security is when your signals from your connected devices or mobile devices, your signals are leaking away and can be read by a third party. So the same ideas that we've talked about for interference where you can block uh, external signals, those same you know, ideas and graphene uh, technologies can be used for security where you can protect your signals from being uh, from leaking away from let's say your laptop for example and then they can be read by uh, uh, unwanted I mean third parties that could use this information in uh, negative ways so security is also very important uh, for aviation for medical facilities uh, uh, for military and so on I was just thinking about the military aspect of this. Thank you for adding this up. The fact that you do need some good shielding to protect your data in a more and more data dependent world. So that is quite interesting. Actually, it's a great aspect to wrap up. I'd like to thank you both very much for meeting with me today. Uh, it was very nice to chat with you and I hope the project goes nicely and you'll have great results by the end of it and by 2023. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Crosstalks. If you have enjoyed the episode, and even if you haven't, we would love to hear from you. So make sure to subscribe and leave a review. For additional content, follow us at YouTube Portugal on Twitter or visit utiosinportugal.org. The GEMIS Project Consortium brings together scientists and business people, in particular staff and researchers from Grafines, the International Iberian Nanotechnology Laboratory, the University of Minho, and the University of Texas at Austin. The GEMIS is co-funded by the European Regional Development Fund through COMPET 2020 and the Portuguese Foundation for Science and Technology under UTOS in Portugal. The total eligible investment is around 1.84 million euros, with public funding amounting to 1.71 million euros. The UTOS in Portugal program is a partnership program in science and technology between the Portuguese Foundation for Science and Technology and the University of Texas at Austin, supported by the Ministry of Science, Technology and Higher Education in close collaboration with the Council of Rectors of Portuguese Universities.